are having a seat this morning, we're going to take a moment now and dismiss our children upstairs to be a part of our kids' crew worship. So we have kids who are grade six and under that are gathered all around the room, really scattered is maybe a better word, all around the room, and they're going to head upstairs now to be a part of kids' crew worship experience, which is a time for them. They will have a lesson and different activities on their level, and so... As they do that, I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, the scripture that we'll be studying this morning will be on the screens for you to follow along, but there's also a blue hardback Bible in the pew in front of you, in the, in the back of that pew in front of you, and I would encourage you to grab that and open it up. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, so you're going to find it toward the very end, of course, and we're going to be in chapter 3. We're studying through The seven letters written to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And this is the sixth in the series of these letters. And so as we work our way through these letters, we're nearing the end of this particular study that we've very creatively called seven letters, right? Seven letters to seven churches. But as we do this, we we have seen in each of these letters lessons that apply to us as the church today and, and this morning I believe that God has a word that he wants to, to teach us and that he, things that he wants to show us that will, that will shape us, that will mold not only our understanding of God's love for us and his call for our lives, but also give us action steps, things that we should do in order to live out in, in an obedient way, to live out the, these lessons. And so we'll be studying in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. There's one other thing I do want to say uh, in, in case I forget to draw attention to this later because it's here in front of me. You'll notice on the stage are these, uh, br- these uh, bracelets, these, these prayer bands is what we would call them. And they have written on them the names of the campers and the sponsors who are going to Falls Creek this week. And so they're, they're here and they're sort of just arranged along the steps of the stage here so that during the invitation time today, you can come and take one of these and you can pray for our sponsors and our students who leave in the morning to head to a week at Falls Creek. The students' prayer bands are orange, or this color of orange, and the adult prayer bands are blue. You'll be able to distinguish if you're wondering when you get here what's the difference in the colors. That's what it is. And so you'll see these arranged here, and we would encourage you to pick one of these up during our time of invitation today, put it on your wrist, and then remember this week to pray for our students and sponsors. Every time you look down and you see that name on your wrist, maybe a reminder to you to pray for that person that God would move in their life this week as we head to camp, okay? And so uh, those will be here during the invitation. All right, Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, we're going to read the letter that is written to the church in Philadelphia, okay? Read with me. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word 
about patient endurance, he writes, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. And I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to these churches. And so just as we've seen with each of the previous letters that we have studied, there is a pattern here, that, uh, a pattern of sorts. Because, you know, when we write letters, we tend to follow a, a pattern as well, right? There's traditionally, there's your introduction, there's your, your greeting of sorts. You, you start out by sort of telling the person that you're writing to, kind of the purpose, the reason why you're writing to them. Then you go in detail and, and you talk more about it. And then typically we sort of summarize, we wrap things up and, and give some kind of a, of, of a final farewell, a, a salutation, if you will. And that's exactly the pattern of sorts that, that has been followed in each of these letters. And so this morning, as we work our way through this letter and study this letter, we're going to follow that same pattern. And in these letters, the pattern goes like this. There's a commendation. There's some kind of praise given to the church. There's a condemnation. There's some kind of a word of rebuke for the things that they're doing wrong. There's a command. There's clear instruction for them to follow. And then the call, which is the, the, the promise that they're, to walk, that, that, that they're to receive if they will walk in the way that, that Christ has called them to walk. So the, the commendation, the condemnation, the command, the call, we studied in each of these letters, and we'll find that in this letter written to the church in Philadelphia. But also, I, I want to give some background about this church and, and these people in Philadelphia that will help give us some understanding and some context of why this letter was written. Uh, more importantly, also, uh, uh, what is happening in the life of this church that helps, in, in, a, in a sense, frame what is being written to the church. And from there, then, we'll springboard into the application for our lives and the way that it continues to speak to us today. So the city of Philadelphia itself was founded by Benjamin Franklin, and uh, it's in north, or rather southeast Pennsylvania. I've been waiting for weeks to use that joke. Come on, you got to give me a better laugh than that. Uh, Philadelphia, you've heard before, is brotherly love, right? Is That's what Philadelphia means, and it actually comes from the Greek word Phileo, which is one of the Greek words for love. You've heard preachers preach before. You've heard me talk before about different words in the Greek language that we just translate as the word love in English. Eros, phileo, and agape are the three words in the Greek language, at least in Koine Greek, which is New Testament Greek, that are translated to mean love in the English language. And so uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, Actually, the first Philadelphia gets its name from the two brothers that were a part of the founding of the city. If you remember when we studied the letter to the church in Pergamum, that there was a very instrumental king in the city of Pergamum whose name was Eumenes, King Eumenes. And King Eumenes and his younger brother, Attalus, are credited with having founded the city of brotherly love. Now, it's not for sure which of these kings actually established 
the city, but it was in the second century BC that the city of Philadelphia was founded. And so whether it was Attalus, the younger brother, who, by the way, his nickname in history, his nickname is Philadelphus, which means lover of his brother, because he was such an admirer of his older brother, King Eumenes, and he did so much to try to preserve the legacy of his older brother, Eumenes, and and be faithful to carrying out the decrees and the instructions of his older brother. So he was given the nickname uh, Brother Lover Philadelphus, and so whether it was because of that or whether actually the name of the city came first and, and, and that just the tag stuck to the younger brother, we don't know for sure. But the city of Philadelphia was established by the, the Greeks in Pergamum as an outpost for the spread of Greek culture and the Greek language amongst the Lydians, which were the people of sort of the, the central region of Turkey. So on a map that we have, you can see uh, the, the layout of these seven churches, you see Patmos is the island where John was when he was given this revelation, and we've talked about how beginning in Ephesus and then following the, the, the road uh, along the way to these different churches, there was a postal route, there was a, a route, that, that, a road, if you will, that connected these different cities that helped aid in the spread of information, of goods, of culture even, and so... The city of Philadelphia was located on a plateau descending from the high country of Sardis, and, and it was established really as an outpost to spread Greek culture and Greek language to the central portion of, uh, again, this is modern-day Turkey, and in these days, that area would have been known as Lydia. So the area to the west where these cities were located would have been known as Asia, and the area to the east would have been known as Lydia. And it, this was a part of the, 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 design, uh, the design and the desire of the Greeks was not only to conquer, but to spread their culture and their influence as well. And so they called that, that system of intentional uh, indoctrination in the Greek language, the Greek culture, it was called Hellenization. Uh, and so they, they Hellenized the groups. And you may think, well, what does that mean? Well, you think of uh, the name Helen of Troy. If you know much of Greek history, you can, you, you're probably familiar with Helen of Troy. It was one of the, the figures of early Greek uh, culture and language. And so the name itself is even derived from that. So it's the idea of the spread of Greek influence, Greek culture. And, and so Philadelphia was born, if you will, as a city as a gateway to spread Greek culture and influence throughout Lydia. And so because of that, it was also given the nickname, the Gateway to the East. The Gateway to the East. It was a gateway city. The city of Philadelphia is uh, the modern Turkish city of Alashahir. And so in this city today, if you were to travel to Alashahir today, you would find that the ruins of ancient Philadelphia actually lie underneath much of the modern city. As, the, as, as time has passed, the, the modern city was actually built on top of the ancient ruins in many ways. And so of the seven letters, or the seven cities rather, that these seven letters are written to these seven churches, we, we really know the least probably of all of these about the city of Philadelphia because little, little remains in the way of 
uh, of ruins because much of that has a modern city built on top of it. And so archaeologists are even working to this day to try to excavate portions of the ancient city and unearth those ruins and, and do these archaeological discoveries because they consider it in, in many ways sort of uh, undiscovered uh, in the sense that, that there's a city built on top of it. Uh, we also know that in the year A.D. 17, there was a massive earthquake that destroyed much of the city of Philadelphia. In fact, if you remember last week when we talked about the city of Sardis, we also talked about how Sardis was largely destroyed in this massive earthquake in the year A.D. 17. And the same earthquake that destroyed Sardis destroyed, flattened, if you will, much of Philadelphia. And so in order to rebuild the city, the citizens of Philadelphia needed outside help. And so it was with a, a grant, with a donation from the Roman emperor, the Roman Caesar Tiberius, that the city was rebuilt. And so because of that, actually the inhabitants of Philadelphia renamed their city Neo Caesarea. Caesarea was, of course, a city, the, the title given to a city that it was the city of the Caesar, basically, the city that belonged to the Caesar. And so Neo is the word for new. So the new city of the Caesar was the city that was built on the ruins to the city Philadelphia. But, of course, it was still known by many according to the name Philadelphia, which is why John addresses the, the church there, this letter. Even Jesus speaks to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. And so the city of Philadelphia stood strong if you know much of this the history of this region you know that over the years this entire region of, of Turkey was uh, really engaged in a series of ongoing wars and for the better part of a thousand years there were ongoing wars between the Ottomans who were the Turks and uh, the, the people of the West we would they're the descendants of the, the Romans, the, the Latin culture. And so they were engaged, sort of the Europeans and, and those from the east, the Turks from the east, were engaged in this battle. You can think of the Crusades and the Holy Crusades and, and those battles that were fought. And a lot of times we think of Jerusalem and, and the warring that happened in Jerusalem as they were fighting. But really, a lot of the fighting of those wars took place in Turkey because it was the bridge that connected the middle, the Middle East from the, the the West, we would say. So the place where East and West and West met, and so because of that, many of these cities over the centuries were conquered. But Philadelphia actually was one of the last Turkish cities to fall. It wasn't until the 14th century A.D. that the city of Philadelphia finally fell to the Turkish king. Uh, Temur, who actually was, uh, he wasn't even a Turk, but he had conquered the Turks. He was from further east. And so you, you find as you study all of this history, just some very interesting things that we know about this city that fit with what Jesus writes, right? He tells them to hold fast. He tells them to stand strong. And we know that they were able to do this. So let's look at this letter that Jesus speaks to the church at Philadelphia. First thing that we see in verse 7 is, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. This is a reference, of course, to Jesus, who is the one who is speaking these words. He's the one who has this, this instruction to give to the church at Philadelphia. And the, the picture of the 
the key of David is, is a, a picture of Jesus being the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah that there would be a Messiah who would be given the key of David. In Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, uh, Isaiah says this prophecy that I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And so Jesus being the one who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens, is another way of saying that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one who has the divine authority of God. He is the one who fulfilled the prophecies. He is the one who is himself God in the flesh, the the one that was waited for by Israel's fulfillment of that promise. And so it's just a picture of Jesus' divine authority over his church to speak these words to his church. And so the first thing we see in this letter is, is the commendation, the, the praise that is given to the church in Philadelphia. In your notes, you see that Jesus praised the church at Philadelphia for being faithful to his word and for not denying his name in spite of the fact that they had little power. And so he writes, I know your works. Uh, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know your works, he writes. Have you ever felt like the things that you do that no one sees and and no one appreciates? Have, Have you ever felt like, you know, I serve and I do these things and I try to help and I try to be involved and and, and sometimes I wonder if anyone sees, if anyone notices, if anyone cares. Can I tell you, Jesus knows your works. This is an encouraging word to us today, that Jesus would say to the church, I know your works. I see the things that you do, those things that you, you, that you don't think anyone else notices, those things that no one ever, no one ever really pats you on the back and no one, no one sees the good that you do. Jesus is saying, I I know your works, but this can also be a a fearful and a a sobering thought for us when we think that Jesus writes, I know your works, because the things that we may think that we have kept hidden in the secret, the things that we think we have kept in the dark, in the recesses that no one knows, those, those secret thoughts, those secret lies, those secret things that we do, the reality is that Jesus sees all of it, just as he sees everything in our lives, every every corner of of our lives, if you will. He sees what is going on with the church in Philadelphia, and he writes to them, I know your works. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. We've already talked about the fact that the key of David here refers to the fulfillment of the, the prophecy that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but the picture of the open door, that he's able to open a door that no one is able to shut, but the picture of the open door in, throughout the New Testament is, is the picture that is given of sharing the gospel. And so when, when the New Testament writers write about a door that is open, they're talking about the opportunity, right? And we consider an open door an opportunity today. We still, we still refer to an open door as an opportunity, right? This, what doors are going to open up for me? I'm just waiting to see if the door will open. I'm waiting for an open door. We talk that way, right, about opportunities that are in front of us. But specifically in the New Testament, when this phrase is used, it's typically used to talk about the opportunity, the open door to share the gospel, to share our faith. And so in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, 
Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In Acts chapter 14, verse 27, Luke writes that when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, Paul writes about a wide door that is open for the effective work. And and Paul writes, says, a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, and he goes on to tell the story there, but he's talking about entering into Troas and the door that opened and, and the opportunity to share the gospel. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul writes, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on, which, on account of which I am in prison. And so there, th- this idea of an open door refers to the ability to share the gospel, to share the story of Christ. And so this is a reference here to Christ placing on the church in Philadelphia an opportunity, the responsibility, if you will, for them to share their faith, an open door for them to share the gospel. And so just as Philadelphia was the gateway city, the city that had been established for the spread of Greek culture and Greek influence throughout Lydia and as that gateway to the east, Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia, you have stood strong for me. You have remained faithful. You have not denied my name. And now I'm going to open the door for you. I'm going to use you as a gateway to spread the gospel, to share my name because you've been faithful to, to my name. So it's a picture of the way that Jesus wants to continue working in, in the church. Notice that there are three things that, that he says here, Jesus says to this church about why he will open this door for them. He says to them, I know that you have little power. Jesus is going to open the door because he knows that the church has little power, that they don't have much power on their own, which is actually a really good thing to say about a church, right? Anytime what is... Anytime this word is spoken about a church, it's a, it's a good thing that you don't have much power, but God has great power to work through you. Reality, it's often when we talk about a church that is trying to do things in their own power that we should be worried. When we talk about believers who are trying to work and do things in their own strength, in their own power, according to their own plans... That's when we see trouble happen. So he says, I know that you have little power, but also he says, you have kept my word. So I know you have little power, I know you have kept my word, and finally he says, you have not denied my name. And because of these three things, he's going to open the door for them. He's gonna create an opportunity for them to share their faith, to witness the gospel, to be that gateway for others to receive Christ. And so... We see this, the the commendation. This is the praise given to the church. Now, in your notes, you'll notice that under the condemnation, I've left that area blank. And the reason that I've left that area blank is because there's not a condemnation given to the church in Philadelphia. In fact, of the letters written to these different churches, this is the one church that is not admonished, that is not rebuked for some sin, some thing that was going wrong in the midst of the church. And so Jesus gives them praise 
but he doesn't give them a rebuke. He, he says, because you have remained faithful, because you have not denied my name, I will open a door for you. He also goes on to say, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word. And so this is an important thing that the, the synagogue of Satan here is a reference to those who believed that they were honoring God but had in fact rejected Jesus the Messiah. Those who believed that they were, that they were standing for what was right but in reality had utterly rejected Christ. Excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. No, it went away as soon as I did that. Okay. Uh, those who had, who had rejected Christ as Messiah, I felt it coming and, and I guess turning was all it took to make that go away. So he says to them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sustain you. I'm going to uphold you. Those who are your adversaries are going to come and bow down before you because you have remained faithful. It's a picture of the blessing of God that is on this church that has little strength of its own, but there's great power when God is at work through them. And so he doesn't condemn them. He doesn't rebuke them for anything. But can I, can I say this? I, I want to be clear to point this out. Because just because Jesus doesn't rebuke the church at Philadelphia for something, just because there's no condemnation written, does not mean that this is a perfect church, right? That does not mean that this church did everything right, that they were perfect. And, and it's important to say that, and here's the reason why I think it's important to say that. Sometimes we, we have the, the, the picture in our minds that there is a Philadelphia out there somewhere, there is this picture of a perfect church, and so we're looking for the perfect church church and we're trying to find the perfect church where everything is just right and everyone is just right and, and everything goes smoothly and perfectly all the time. And can I tell you that the, the idea of a perfect church is, is a, a myth. It's a, a unicorn, if you will. It doesn't exist. There are no perfect churches. Philadelphia was not a perfect church. This church First Baptist Church of Chickasha is not a perfect church. I am not a perfect pastor. We do not have a perfect staff. We do not have perfect deacons and perfect Sunday school teachers and perfect ushers and greeters and all. We're not a perfect church. But can I tell you, that's good news for you because that means that you can belong here because if we were a perfect church, we would all be in trouble because I know this about you even if I don't know you that you're not perfect, and your life is not perfect, and you have problems, and you have issues, and I have said this to our church so many times, but I want to say it again, because I feel like we should always look for the opportunity to champion this, this truth, that there is no perfect church, and if you ever found the perfect church, you should, you should stay away, because you would mess it up, right? You would ruin it. There's no perfect church. Philadelphia is not a perfect church, and yet, in the midst of their own weaknesses in the mix of their own problems, Jesus gives them this praise. You remain faithful and you did not deny my name. See, what, what Christ calls us to do as his people is not to live perfectly, but rather that we would be faithful and that we would not deny his name. Do you see that? What he called Philadelphia to do was to hold fast, and so the next thing is the command. 
the command for the church is that they would hold fast, he says, to what you have. So Jesus called the church of Philadelphia to hold fast to the reward that they had been given. The reward, of course, that they would be given was that he would, he would, he would uphold him, that he would strengthen them. He would cause these, what he calls the synagogue of Satan, to come before them and to bow down. And that's a picture, really, of how Jesus would be the one to strengthen and uphold. He, he called for them to be faithful to this door that he was opening for them, this gateway for them to share their faith, to spread the message of the gospel to others. So the command is for the church at Philadelphia to hold fast and then finally we see the call. And, and the call is, is very similar to the, the command. The call is for them to remain faithful because those who remain faithful are promised salvation through Jesus. And so when he says to them, the one who conquers in verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, my own new name. He's saying essentially that I will uphold and strengthen and I will bless those who remain faithful and that ultimately they will receive the promise of salvation. All of these things, the, the, these pictures, the the. the Temp, the pillar in the temple of God, the, the name uh, being written, that I, he says, I will write on him the name of my God. So the name of God being written on them, the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, my own new name. These are pictures of the ultimate fulfillment of, of their salvation, which we know will come at the second coming of Christ. And there's a, a connection here with these things that are being said. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 about his coming, his second coming, and, and other New Testament scriptures that talk about the second. So there's a second coming of Christ, there's a connection here, but the ultimate picture is of receiving salvation in Christ, of the fulfillment of that promise which was given that those who remain faithful, those who are genuinely believers, those who are genuinely of the faith, we might say, because they endure, they will be given this new name. And, and so, Revelation picks up on these, these, these are actually all pictures of prophecy, of Old Testament prophecy as well, in uh, in, in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah talks about new things. He talks about a new song and a new name. All of these are in Isaiah's prophecy and a new heaven and a new earth. And, and so these are, again, these, it's, a, it's a picture of how Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and that as the Messiah, as the one who is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Old Testament, that he has the authority to bring these things about. He holds the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, of David. He is the Messiah. He is the one. He has power to fill this church of little power. And so it's Jesus working through the church, enabling the church to remain faithful and true to the word that he's given them, the call that he has placed on them. And those who remain faithful are promised ultimately their salvation through Jesus. And so I want us to see some points of application. We've seen what is spoken, what is written to this church. But if I can this morning, I, I want us to take these, these same points, many of them, and look at how these apply to our life and how we find ourselves in the story of this church of Philadelphia. The first application point is this, is that when we rely on God's power and not our own, big things can happen. 
Jesus says to this church, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. All that it takes for us to see great things happen is that we would have faith, that we would remain faithful and true to the name of Christ, right? He doesn't say to them, because you have so much power, because you have so much strength, really what he says is, because you remain faithful, I'm going to give you the power and the strength that you need, which is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew when he writes, or when he speaks, and Matthew rather writes, but Jesus speaks about the, the faith of a mustard seed, right? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 17 that if you have but the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move, and it will be moved, right? He, there's a, a parable given in Matthew chapter 13 about the mustard seed, though it's one of the smallest seeds, grows into a great tree. The picture there is that those who have genuine faith, even though their faith may be small, even though their strength may be small, God is able to work through that in a way that is exponentially greater than their own strength and their own power. And that's exactly what we need to understand for our lives as well, is that when we rely on God's power and not our own, big things can happen. Because it's the power of Christ working in us and through us to accomplish the word that he's called us to. Secondly, we see this. Sometimes we can have the greatest kingdom impact by simply getting out of the way. Sometimes the very best thing that you and I can do in order to serve Jesus is to get out of his way. Jesus says in John chapter 12 to his disciples, he says that I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. And John tells us that he said that in order to show the way that he would die. But it goes on to, to talk about in John chapter 12 about what this really means when we would lift up Jesus and live for him and allow his power to work through us. In fact, if you come back tonight in our service tonight, that's the passage I'm going to preach on at six o'clock tonight. And out of John chapter 12, where Jesus tells the disciples, if I'm lifted up, then I'll draw all men unto myself. And so the, the picture is of us not trying to do everything in our own strength, and our own power, in our own way, but rather that we would point others to Jesus, that he has the power to transform. He has the power to change them, to shape them. He is the one who is able to mold them and make them into something beautiful and glorious. What you and I need to do is to not try to get in the way, to not try to steal the spotlight, to not try to get the glory for ourselves, but rather that we would give him the glory, that we would step out of the way so we can have our greatest kingdom impact by simply getting out of the way. And third, and finally, we see this, that there is no greater reward than being counted as one of God's own. And so what is it that Jesus says to the church here? He says, I know your works, right? Notice that he says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus says to them, because of your patient endurance. Those, are so, those words are so important. Patient endurance. Jesus is rewarding the church, not for their strength, not for their greatness, but for patient endurance. And he says, because of your patient endurance, I am going to do a work 
through you. I'm going to preserve you from the hour of tribulation that's coming. The trials that others are going to go through, the problems that others are going to face, you're not going to face those. Why? Because you have patiently endured for the sake of my name. You have not denied my name. You have kept your faith. You understand that it's not what you bring to the table, but what I bring to the table that matters, Jesus is saying. Patient endurance. And when you believe in Jesus and you have patient endurance, his strength will be demonstrated through your life. You understand that the reward that we are seeking, that what we are after in this life, is not the things that come with knowing Jesus, but it's Jesus himself. And when Jesus is your reward, not the things that we think of as the benefits of knowing Jesus, but when Jesus himself is your reward, then you're able to patiently endure the sufferings, the trials, the temptations, the things that we go through in this life. Because you understand that in the midst of all of that, you have the prize, which is Jesus, the prize that we're seeking. And I wonder this morning, would you count Jesus as your greatest reward? Would you honestly and truly be able to say that the prize that I'm seeking, the reward that I'm after in my life is Jesus? The pursuit of my life is not in getting glory for myself, it's not building my own reputation, but it's in building the reputation of Jesus so that others would see him, so that he would receive the glory, so that he would receive the honor, so that others would look at me and they would see Jesus. There's no greater reward than being counted as one of his own, than being used by him, than being marked by him. The picture here of being created into a pillar in the temple of God and having the name of God written on us and the name of the new city of Jerusalem, the name, the new name of Jesus, these are signs that we have been marked by the blood of Christ. These are signs that we have been counted as his own. And there is no greater reward for the believer in Christ than simply Jesus himself. It's not what we get because of Jesus. It's Jesus that is our prize. And I wonder, have you ever come to the place in your life where you know beyond any shadow of doubt that you have trusted in Jesus, that he is your prize? Not the things that you get because of Jesus, not the things that come with knowing Jesus, but that Jesus himself is your reward. Have you genuinely trusted in him and are you relying on his power to work in you and through you so that others would be drawn toward Jesus, so that he would be lifted up? just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation, a time of response. And in our time of response today, I want to challenge you that if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never trusted him as Lord and Savior of your life, that you would come today, that you would not walk out the doors of this, this, this sanctuary at the end of our time today the same as when you came in, but rather you would be transformed by the saving power of Christ because you would trust in him as Lord and Savior, that you would understand that it's Jesus that we are seeking after, him and nothing else that is our reward, our prize that we're pursuing. Maybe you're here today and you think, you know, I feel so small and so insignificant, and I'm not sure that I have much to offer. Praise God that you feel that way, because, friend, now you're at the place where you can be used by him. Because now you're at the place where you're ready to rely on his strength at work through you. And maybe there's a way that you sense that God is leading you. And, and you say, I don't know that I have enough to do this. I'm not sure. Listen, you, you don't have to have what it takes. You have to have the faith to let God work through you to do what he wants to do. Maybe the, 
thing that you really need to do is just get out of his way so that he'll work through you. Our altars will be open here. You can come and pray, and those things that God is leading you to do, you, you could surrender them to him today. And then maybe you want to take one of these, these prayer bands and begin praying that these same lessons would be cemented in the hearts of these people who are going to camp this week, that they would trust in Christ, that they would lean into him, that they would understand that Jesus is the prize and that they would pursue after him with all they have. We would encourage you to come and take one of these bands as well that you can pray for our campers this week. So whatever way God is moving, whatever way he's stirring in your heart, as we respond to him by faith, I would challenge you that you would come this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, now in this time, as we, as we look to you, I pray that you would be lifted up in this moment, in this hour, so that you might draw us to yourself, that you might draw others to faith in you. God, we, we want to turn away from our own strength and our own power, our own abilities. We want to turn away from trusting in ourselves and rely completely on you and the power and the strength that you provide, that we might live for you, that our lives might make kingdom impact as we let you work in us and through us. So God, now we pray, fill us with your strength. Give us your power. Jesus, you are the prize that we seek. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now as we stand to sing this song of invitation, this song of response together, we would encourage you to come. We'll be here at the front ready to pray with you, receive you. If God is leading you this morning, if you want to come and kneel here in prayer, the altar is open. We invite you to do that now as you respond to God's movement. My life is a light for your cause. My will laid aside for your call. And reserved are the depths of my heart. Only for you And I'm caught in the rhythms of grace They overcome all of my ways Realigning each step every day To live for your glory There's none Inside you, God, there's none beside you, God. You're there dark of the night while holding the sun and its light through the triumph and trials alike there's no one beside you your voice calls the stars by their name cause you whisper them all to their place to testify to your wonder and praise but now and forever there's none beside 
beside you, God. church in Philadelphia. You don't have a lot of power, but that's okay. He's saying, I've got all the power you need. If you will just remain faithful to me, not deny my name, and my prayer is that you and I would remain faithful and that we would hold fast to what we've been given, that we would be that gateway of the gospel so that others would see Jesus in us. Amen? Have a seat if you would now, and as we prepare for our time of offering in just a minute. I, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things. First of all, if 